This podcast is recorded and produced on Gadigal land as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country nationwide and their connections to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You're listening to It Takes Boobs, a Women's Agenda special podcast celebrating the strength, resilience and grit of women across Australia. Through this series, we challenge the typical sexist trope of it taking balls to get big things done. Boy, is that wrong. I'm your host, Tyler Lambert, and this series is made possible thanks to our friends at Stella Insurance. It's no surprise that even today, in 2023, countless gender gaps persist. And while this spurs over multiple areas, I want to pull your attention to a very necessary conversation regarding the gender health gap and how women's healthcare is so often overlooked, despite our limited knowledge in so many areas. Chief Operating Officer of Cancer Council Queensland, Balveen Ajamal, joins me in today's episode to talk about her experience living with endometriosis and reflecting on the path that needs to be created for future generations of women navigating similar diagnoses. Balveen, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to start with your story and if you could just tell us a little bit about your experience and your career trajectory so far. Thanks for having me, Tala. Um, It's a great pleasure to be here. Look, I've had a fairly varied career and I've been lucky to work both in the private sector and not-for-profit sector. I started my career as a corporate lawyer in London and um, from there moved into various strategy and business development roles. And I've found that I was much better at that business side of, of industry than I was as a lawyer and gradually wanted to move and offer my services to not-for-profit and the community sector. So I set up my own business when I moved to Brisbane and gradually got to know people working in community-facing enterprise. And my passion has really always been about making sure that we work across sectors to address common issues that exist in our community. And particularly for my case, with a focus on ensuring women have access and information to really achieve their potential. So I've been privileged to work in a number of roles and um, my latest role or my current role with the Cancer Council really gives me that ability to use my old skills from law, private equity, business development, and look at healthcare for women with a different lens. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I want to now shift into your story. And so you were diagnosed with endometriosis when you were 21 years old. When did you start to feel that the pain you were feeling on a regular basis was abnormal to just period pains? I can imagine having to navigate that through your teenage years wouldn't have been easy. Well, I was lucky in that my mother had endometriosis, so we had some of that vocabulary and knowledge within our family. So growing up, I was aware that she obviously suffered consistently with very heavy periods and extreme pain um, and was receiving treatment at the time. So as as a child and as a teenager, that was part of our family experience. It still took a number of years, though, before that link to my symptoms became obvious. I think there was probably a lack of information about how young endometriosis can impact on girls and young women. So my mother probably, um, and I think at the time, didn't equate my symptoms with hers because in her information set that she received or had access to at the time, endometriosis was 
something that only impacted mature women or perhaps women of childbearing age. Whereas as a young girl aged 11, when I first got my period, she probably wouldn't have put those symptoms down to a similar condition. So from 11, really, I had very heavy and painful periods. And, uh, you know, like many girls, uh, probably didn't talk at that stage around what I was experiencing. And that's been one of the greatest drivers for me in joining Endometriosis Australia is just to normalize discussion about what it means to have a period. What is normal? What isn't normal? There's still a great expectation, I think, that women do and should experience pain um, and that pain is normal and that debilitating pain is normal and just part and parcel of being a girl or a woman. And that is not true. So encouraging those conversations early is one of my greatest parts of my commitment to endometriosis Australia. But personally, that only became an issue when I was in my late teens and then early 20s. And that I guess, had the ability to advocate for my own health and my symptoms more independently. And that's when I first saw a gynecologist and and had those conversations and the diagnosis was made. Mm. You wrote a piece for SBS noting how your cultural upbringing, being raised in a conservative Indian household, factored into your lack of knowledge around endometriosis. And despite your own mother having also been diagnosed with the same disease, it was still quite a taboo topic to talk about. How did you end up educating yourself further about endometriosis? And is it still a controversial conversation within your family? Um, I think the taboo comes around not specifically endometriosis as a condition, but any open discussion about gynecological and women's health. And I think that's the intersection that's really difficult for women and girls who have any significant issues with reproductive um, health, with women's health, that there's always this level of cultural interplay that comes over the top, um, which clouds discussion about particular conditions. Now, I have a young daughter, she's eight and a half. My hope with her is that her health is her primary responsibility and concern. Um, Whether or not that involves discussion about particular diseases or particular conditions is almost secondary. But to be able to discuss on an open basis what contributes to well-being, mental health, positive and constructive discussions about agency and commitment to a girl and a woman's own mental and physical health is where we need to start. When a condition becomes prevalent, then it makes it just so much easier to have those conversations in a safe and constructive environment. So in my family, it was the first bit that never really happened. We didn't talk about what a healthy body looked like, what was healthy sexuality, what was healthy in sexual relationships let alone what might impact on that from a particular condition. And I think that's true of a lot of families, regardless of cultural heritage, but cultural differences can often play into that conversation. So I really think it's important to get back down to the very basics of what a healthy female body does and how that should be part of our normal conversation in a very open, non-judgmental, factual way, so that if conditions arise that are not normal, those conversations can also be had from a point of strength, not from a point of weakness. Mm. Do you reflect on how challenging that must have been for your mum in navigating the same condition without that support that, you know, you were able to access? Absolutely. I think um, a generation back and two generations ago, those conversations would have been really difficult, both from a basis of not just social stigma, but from incorrect facts around fertility, 
around femininity, around what it means to be a healthy and productive woman. Because the endometriosis um, diagnosis has certain connotations around fertility, not all of which are true, I think that's another layer of misconception or skews the conversation really for women in openly talking about women's health. I know that two of my older aunties on my on my dad's side died from ovarian and cervical cancer, but their own families didn't know about their symptoms until way too late. So again, endometriosis is something that's impacted me personally, and that's something I'm really passionate about. But being able to discuss symptoms, treatments, and women's health on a daily basis really helps us to have those conversations across a whole range of conditions. Mm-hmm. Are you more candid with your mum and parents now around what you experience, what your daughter might experience? I'm much more candid with my own children. I've got two boys as well. Um, I think that discussion is just normal. I mean, how our bodies work, how their bodies work. I'm very open with my kids. We recently, I watched a movie, which is a documentary stroke real story about a family in India and a the husband in that scenario realized his wife didn't have um, access to good sanitary care. So he sat around trying to develop a low-cost, sustainable solution to giving her clean and hygienic sanitary wear. And, and that's a fascinating story. It's based on a true story. And the boys asked me about it. And we had a great conversation about what that looks like in that culture. So it's coming out of this bubble of women's health into just what does it mean to have a different body and what, what happens to your body at different points of your life and doing that in a way that's not covered in shame. It's not overly sexualized. It doesn't need to come from a position of illness. It's just about being normal. Yeah. Bavin, I understand that you underwent multiple surgeries following your diagnosis with endometriosis. Following the birth of your three kids, you also had a hysterectomy. How did these procedures affect your physical and emotional well-being? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I had, um, I think I've had a total of 10 surgeries now, probably over 10 years. Um, so uh, a range there of laparoscopies, incisions, cysts, the three cesarean sections and ablation, and then a hysterectomy. So that's, that's, that's a lot of surgery for anyone to deal with. I think even um, regardless of the physical impacts of each particular procedure, the recovery from general anesthetic, the recovery from pain medication, those things are really understated. So I think better support in terms of the impacts of taking long-term pain medication, um, the hormonal impacts of coming on and off the pill, which was my form of contraception, um, and the long-term effects of recovering from general anesthesia, I think is really important. So while we again look at healthcare or clinical healthcare as a one-off event, the impacts of that run on for many weeks and months after each, imp- after each um, surgery. So I think that's where uh, complementary allied health the not-for-profit sector, you know, other parts of that care environment can really kick in. Once you're out of the clinical setting, how does that all wrap holistically around a woman in in the support of a chronic illness? That's really important. In my um, situation, each of those um, surgeries did repair the immediate 
issue. So um, was was successful in the immediate term. But um, as we know, and I think as research has improved, endometriosis does come back. Unfortunately, it's not necessarily something that you can eliminate with one surgery. I understand that the surgery techniques are also improving. So, you know, a more precise and a more intensive surgery can actually delay those returns. And, and I'm sure there's clinical providers who are better placed to explain that than me. But I think that's important improving the rates of multiple surgeries for younger women or women who are being diagnosed now. I think um, with the hysterectomy, um, I also had adenomyosis, which is a related condition or similar condition to endometriosis, where the lining of the womb grows inside the muscle wall of the uterus. So that was contributing to a lot of my symptoms at the time and led me to the decision to have the hysterectomy. Um, recovery from a hysterectomy is tough. I was really fortunate that I had had three healthy babies. Their pregnancies were very complicated and I had three cesarean sections, which also has impacts. Yeah, it's a long recovery from hysterectomy, particularly when you have a job, kids, normal family life. And again, I think um, looking at women's health in a holistic way and through the support of uh, a really unified women's health strategy will help us to understand what role those different organisations can play in supporting women on a longitudinal basis through complex conditions. Mm-hmm. So that women that are undergoing similar, you know, surgeries and experiences as you did um, have, you know, that, that support in place and don't have to be silent about what's going on for them. Yeah, I think it's difficult for anyone to know, navigate the health system on their own. It's a complex environment and there are many moving parts. So the better we can get from a health perspective at understanding all those interdependencies and comorbidities, the better placed we will be to actually allocate resources to different providers at different times and stages in chronic conditions. It's very difficult for the not-for-profit sector at the moment to access funding based on individual projects um, when we know that those individual projects have a cumulative effect on the patient or on the client. So putting my private equity hat back on and looking at funding structures that can actually enable a better coordination and a better impact on the individual through multiple funding sources is really the way that I think we need to go. Yeah. In your experience, how can we better address intersectionality in women's health? I think we have to listen to women and I think we have to start believing them um, and their experiences. And I think that doesn't just come under the banner of women's health. That's a whole range of issues that impact predominantly on women, whether it's um, women's health, whether it's their experience of bias in the workforce, whether it's domestic and family violence. I think the stigmas against believing women are embedded in many of our systems that are designed to respond to women and therefore our institutions and our and our policies are often based on facts or, or rather not based on facts. They're based on assumptions about what women say and why they say it. So particularly issues around chronic pain, pelvic pain, issues with with sex, issues with um, women's experience of sex, and also then in relationships and around coercive control and violence. It's very complex. It's not linear, but all of it starts with actually listening and believing in what women are experiencing. And I still think that that's the biggest hurdle that some of our health systems, practitioners, and then looking across social workers, the police are still grappling with. Mm. 
You spoke just now a little bit about the misconceptions that can persist um, around women's health, but what are some of the, the common misconceptions about endometriosis in particular that you've heard a lot over your lifetime? Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions, and I've been thinking about this over the week as different stories have been shared, is around what's normal for a period. Now, half the population of the world has periods, at least, if not more. There cannot be any one definition of what's normal. And women are not a homogenous group. Just because we are women doesn't mean we have the same experiences. So I think there's a really broad range of experience around periods and menstruation, which needs rethinking. It can't be the case that everyone has the same experience. It just, on the basic numbers and data and common sense, that can't be true. So the vocabulary around periods around menstruation, I think is really important. And some of that is quite outdated. When you take that and then transpose it into a conversation about a complex disease that is um, has multiple symptoms, some of which you wouldn't necessarily equate with menstruation, like fatigue, like uh, digestive issues, like intersections with mental health, it's a really complex set of vocabulary that we need to look at. And I think sometimes some of those assumptions around periods and menstrual health get played out quite differently when you're talking about endometriosis. For example, there was a lady at the event um, earlier this week who talked about having a period which went on for two weeks. Now, that's not a period. That's a different issue. My worst point in terms of my endometriosis, and I also had adenomyosis, I was bleeding for three weeks a month. That's not a period. That's bleeding that is irregular. So we've got to start using the right words for the right parts of um, a woman's reproductive and menstrual cycle. Bleeding, which occurs for three weeks a month, is not a period. That's something else. So I think we need to educate our girls really early about what a normal period is, what irregular bleeding and excessive bleeding looks like, and using the correct terminology so they can advocate for themselves. The second part, I think, of misconception does come around fertility and around the ability to conceive and deliver babies. And I think, um, you know, a lot of the fear around conditions like endometriosis and other gynecological conditions is that the link is instantly made to fertility and often at an age which is really inappropriate. So I remember being told um, at my diagnosis, well, you better have those kids quickly. I was 21. I was at the beginning of my legal career. I wasn't in a relationship. That advice at that age, and it's been given to kids at young ages, is just not appropriate. So being able to separate out how you deal with different parts of a chronic condition, I think is really important in enabling women and girls to advocate for themselves at the right time of their lives. Yeah, yeah. Looking ahead, what are your hopes for the future in terms of raising awareness, improving support and breaking down barriers related to endometriosis and women's health? And are there any specific policies or initiatives you're especially proud of? Um, I think looking forward, the key is to start discussions uh, young and to be able to, as I said, use the right vocabulary for the right experience. I think the more women and girls are able to talk openly um, without fear and in safe environments about their experiences and be heard and reflected in research is critical. In terms of the successes that we've had so far as Endometriosis Australia, I really congratulate the team who have been able to raise the profile of this condition 
so significantly over the last um, five to 10 years. I mean, we've really gone from a grassroots organization into one that's influencing state and federal government that has national press coverage. And that's really down to the commitment of the co-founders of the organization and the current team in that relentless conversation around the impacts of endometriosis. I think even the fact that the research has changed and now shows us it's not one in 10 women, it's one in nine, and in Queensland, it's one in six, is really down to the fact that those conversations, the advocacy, the discussion is out there. More women are seeking support, more women are being diagnosed, and um, I think it's probably a lot more than one in six, and we will find out more as research takes place. So that is a massive achievement, even though it sounds like it's not an achievement, but a backstep it's actually an achievement to be hearing that correct diagnoses are being taking place or are happening across across Queensland. Mm. Have you seen policy shifts occur as more women enter parliament? Absolutely. And and I was really pleased that the Premier attended our event in Brisbane last week. And that, again, shows a a commitment and an empowering of women's health on the public agenda that is fantastic to see. I think, again, looking more broadly around women's health, but also women's experiences, you would not have seen the shift in priority given to uh, women's health, women's participation in the workforce, childcare, kindergarten fees, the domestic and family violence platforms that have been created without 50% women in parliament. Um, Now, that's my view. Perhaps it would have happened otherwise. But I think there's been such a significant shift in Queensland brought about under the Palaszczuk government, um, ministers such as Minister Shannon Fentiman, um, Yvette Dath, who have been able to champion women's issues at a state level. And I think the results and the transformation that they have brought about has been almost generational in terms of change. It's to be congratulated. Mm. Yeah, and speak openly about their own health challenges. Yeah. I know uh, the Premier yeah. only recently spoke about her own experience going through miscarriage and um, pregnancy loss. So, yeah, I think that having that unique perspective on, you know, health challenges that impact women is is really key in getting getting the right policies in place. I think there's been on that um, a really big shift just in terms of the corporate environment as well, that there isn't a need necessarily, and this has been across all areas again, to overcompensate or hide the fact that women have particular challenges in the workplace. I think even interviewing uh, younger women now, it's an absolute pleasure to see women expecting flexible work. And that's not all about COVID. That's about a change in, in culture an expectation of flexible work, an expectation of being a primary carer for their children or families, um, an expectation that women's health is acknowledged in the workplace. And so those conversations have shifted considerably from when um, I was a junior member of a law firm. And it's fantastic to see that young women coming into organisations now are open and candid about their expectations. That, That is a really great change that I'm seeing every day. And it would probably give a lot of women greater opportunity to look after their well-being and their health if they're able to work in the way that, you know, meets their own needs. Belvine, this podcast is called It Takes Boobs and while you've walked us through all the ways you've pulled through certain challenges by channeling your inner grit and resilience, if you could reflect on one catalytic moment in your life that was a real it took boobs moment, what would that be? I think it was probably fairly early on in my legal career. So I would have been a junior lawyer, five or six years qualified. 
And I was asked to set up a women's business development program. And this was in the city of London in the 90s when it was a pretty, if you like, male-dominated, high-testosterone environment in one of the legal firms that I worked in. And so I was asked to set up this women's business development group. And I thought about it. And my response was, well, if our business development strategies were not focused around sport, alcohol, And at that time in London, visiting some pretty ordinary establishments in terms of client entertainment, we wouldn't need a separate women's business development strategy. So what is it about our current operating models that actually force us to separate female clients, female lawyers, and the way that we engage in the city? So you've got to look at your existing practices and ask why the need has arisen to segregate essentially women in the workforce. Now, I was pretty young, I was pretty idealistic, and that didn't go down all that well at the time. But that's gradually what started to change in the legal profession in London. And I think there's still a lot of work we need to do in Brisbane to ensure that in focusing on women's health or women's um, success, we're not inadvertently creating silos, which are easy for corporates, for government, for the not-for-profit sector to fall into. Because what is good for women in the workforce is generally good for anyone in the workforce. So it's about our human experience. What does it mean to be a good employer? What does it mean to be a good person in public office? What does it mean to be an advocate of health and well-being? Knowing that women have particular characteristics and needs, but not focusing on those to the detriment of all people in those environments and not focusing them on a way which is linear and actually puts women back in the box we're trying to get them out of. It does take boobs in the workforce to advocate for other women and everyone is able to do that. I think there's a really conscious effort on my part that always has been and I see this in good leadership in any sector where it's okay to proactively identify female talent. It's okay to proactively support women where you see that they are struggling. That's not positive discrimination. That's just being a good person. I think when you see bad behavior, you call it out, whether that's focused on a woman or not, whether it's a male or a female in a workplace of any gender, you've got to be able to call out bad behavior and you have to be able to use the processes and have the confidence to lean on all the HR processes that we have at our disposal in corporate Australia and actually call out poor behavior. That is often something which women shy away from, particularly because you People don't want to be seen as a problem, but it's actually being a good boss. It's being a good employee to use those processes to support other colleagues in the workforce. And that, unfortunately, to date, has rested or the onus of that has often rested on women to be calling out those discrepancies or, or that those areas for other women. I think it's really important to look at the composition of organisations from the top down. So there's been a lot of discussion. I've been involved with some of the work that the Queensland government did a few years ago around women on boards. Um, Holding a board position is a great way to influence an organisation to learn, to contribute on a voluntary or a paid basis um, to the development of policy and um, practices that support women, certainly. I often get asked by women, how do they... um, How do they start their board career? What does it take to be a board director? And when I ask the question, well, why do you want to be on a board? Um, I often get the answer, well, I want to have a seat at the table. 
And now that's a really interesting answer. And I often ask back, well, why do you feel you don't have a seat at the table in your current role? So I think there's a real misconception around what it means to be an advocate in your workplace, regardless of the position you're in. You you should be empowered and should be safe enough in your workplace to act as an advocate for women or for well-being, regardless of your position. So whether that's at board or the C-suite, in a voluntary capacity, as a client, as a participant rather. So I think um, when we talk about it takes boobs, we've got to look at all elements of the structures that we work within um, and make sure that women's voices are heard throughout all of those layers. Yeah, definitely. Balvin, what advice would you give to women who are experiencing symptoms of endometriosis but are hesitant to seek help or discuss their concerns? Um, Two things. One is really ask yourself why you're hesitant. And that's a conversation that I think is an internal one, but also one that you can have with friends, relatives, people who you trust. What, what is it that's making you hesitant? Is it embarrassment? Is it um, shame? Is it that you don't really know what it is that you're experiencing or whether it's worth discussing? I think in some of those conversations, um, you can really start to unlock and we will start to unlock what the barriers are to women seeking access to healthcare. And that's critical. The Premier spoke about a new Queensland women's health strategy that is um, under development. Um, I was also lucky enough to speak to Minister Shannon Fentiman about that earlier last week. So I think in understanding access, we don't just look at service providers, we actually have to look at um, the service users and why they are not accessing healthcare. That's often the, the missing link, I think, in the discussion. So I would, I would really ask women who are not seeking advice to question themselves as to why they're not seeking advice and then to address that and go and seek advice. So, you know, the agency that you have to seek or rather the advocacy for yourself is the most critical and most powerful tool that you have and you need to be able to activate that. And often I think we need support in activating that. We often seek permission to activate that, which is an issue. Uh, And I think women in different cultural or linguistic backgrounds require that permission, which is something else we need to think about and why really dedicated programs for women who are struggling to access and advocate for their own well-being are really important. But um, nothing is more important than your own physical and mental well-being and um, agency and advocacy is, is your right to advocate for that for your own for your own good. So seek advice from trusted sources. Everyone has access to the internet and everyone has access to a GP. So don't be shy, don't be hesitant about getting advice. Mm. Thank you so much for joining this episode of It Takes Boobs, Balvin. Um, it was such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for having me. 